we pray that, uh, that you would increase our anticipation, our expectation, and that in our waiting we would purify ourselves for him. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If Christmas tis the season to be jolly, then Advent tis the season to be patient. We have not gathered this morning to celebrate Christmas. Measuring by our Advent wreath, we are still four candles away from that mysterious and magnificent day in the history of humanity. No, we are here to wait patiently together and to increase our anticipation for a person unique in the history of the world. This is a man who was born of a woman, but through whom all things were created. A boy who had to learn and grow but himself knew divine mysteries beyond all human comprehension. A baby who was vulnerable, but who conquered humanity's greatest foe. A person who is flesh and blood, but not broken. We are waiting for Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God incarnate. And as we celebrate Advent, we are going back in time to join those who waited before the days of Herod, king of Judea, We are entering into the drama of redemption history at a time when they knew neither the time nor the place the promised Messiah would come. They waited in the dark. And even though we know what they knew not, we wait with them, deferring our celebration in order to build our anticipation. We do this because we have a weight of our own that we are enduring. We are waiting for Jesus, having already come and gone to come again as he has promised. We know neither the time nor the place the promised Messiah will come, but we learn how to wait faithfully for his second advent by reliving the wait for his first. We grow in confidence that he will come again when we remember that he kept his promise the first time. Our expectations grow when we recall the longings of the unfulfilled saints who died waiting in line. As our anticipation builds for Christmas, it simultaneously builds for Christ to come again, for we too anticipate a coming of the Messiah. We have four weeks until Christmas and five opportunities to gather before that day, four Sundays plus Christmas Eve. And we will use these five opportunities to revisit Old Testament expectations that Jesus fulfilled. For the first three, we are going to look at the three offices of Christ. He was and is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And for the last two times we are together, we will explore first Jesus' full divinity, and secondly, on Christmas Eve, his full humanity. Prophet, priest, king, divine, human. And this morning, we are anticipating a prophet. It's the first of the three offices that Jesus is said to have held, the other two being priest and king which we'll explore on two later Sundays. This concept of a threefold office was first articulated by Eusebius, bishop of Caesarea, who lived and wrote during the crucial early years of the 4th century, when the Council of Nicaea was held and the Nicene Creed developed, which we will recite together later in our service. Eusebius first articulated the threefold office, but the reformers, particularly John Calvin, picked up on this idea and developed it even further. And one theologian explains the necessity of the threefold office of Christ. 
The truth is that the idea of humanness already encompasses within itself this threefold dignity and activity. Human beings have a head to know, a heart to give themselves, and a hand to govern and to lead. Correspondingly, they were in the beginning equipped by God with knowledge and understanding, with righteousness and holiness, and with dominion and glory. The sin that corrupted human beings infected all their capacities. Therefore, Christ, both as the Son and as the image of God, for Himself and also as our Mediator and Savior, had to bear all three offices. He had to be a prophet to know and to disclose the truth of God, a priest to devote himself to God and in our place to offer himself up to God, and a king to govern and protect us according to God's will. The absolute fallenness of humanity requires a prophet, a priest, and a king to redeem us fully. That is who we are looking for in these first three weeks of Advent. One person who is, on our behalf, a prophet, a priest, and a king. And the search for a prophet began way back in Deuteronomy 18, our passage for this morning. Deuteronomy consists of five sermons that Moses delivered to God's people before they entered the promised land. Moses would not be going with them into the promised land, so he was preparing them for what to expect and how to act in his absence. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses reassures them (coughs) in verse 15 that even though I will be absent, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. God will put his words in this prophet's mouth, and it is to this prophet that you should listen. And so the search was on for a prophet like Moses. You come to the end of Deuteronomy 18, and still the search is on. Deuteronomy 34 uh, reads, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. But when you are searching for something, you must know what the thing you are seeking looks like. Otherwise, how will you know when you have found it? And so there are a few questions we must answer. What is a prophet? And what was unique about Moses that we should be looking for a prophet specifically like him? A prophet is a mouthpiece. God's mouthpiece in this case. A prophet is a truth teller, either revealing new truth or reminding people of a truth they have forgotten. If a human example would help, then look no further than Moses and Aaron. When God chose Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, Moses objected that he was not eloquent. How could he lead God's people if he could not deliver inspirational speeches, he objected. And reminding Moses that he created the tongue in the first place, and reassuring him that he would be with Moses' mouth, God eventually condescended to Moses' insecurities and appointed Aaron to speak for Moses. In Exodus 7.1, God says to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Moses obviously was not God. But God had recreated a heavenly structure on earth with Moses standing in for God and Aaron standing in for one of God's prophets. Whenever Moses and Aaron would go to speak with Pharaoh, it was Aaron who did all the speaking. But Moses told him what to say. Aaron was merely the messenger. And this is the way it was with God and his prophets too. The prophets did all the speaking down here on earth, but it was God who told them what to say. The prophets were merely the messengers 
relaying the truth that God had whispered in their ears. And despite having a prophet of his own, Moses was himself a prophet, God's prophet. In fact, Moses set the expectation for what a prophet should be, not only in what he said, but also in what he did and who he was. He is the mold that the promised prophet of verse 15 will not only fill, but break. In verse 17 of our passage, God tells Moses that the people did right by asking for Moses to be their prophet. They are commended for their request. The circumstances that gave rise to this request are laid out in Exodus 19, when God's people, having escaped from Egypt, find themselves in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. And the scene at that mountain was apocalyptic. Exodus 19 describes it in detail. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. It's no wonder that what the people said what they said to Moses. Verse 16 of our passage says that they told him, Let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. You be God's prophet to us. You go up there. You talk to him. And you tell us what he has to say. Because we don't dare to approach him. And so God summoned Moses to the mountaintop in his thunderous voice. And Moses ascended on behalf of the people and disappeared into the clouds. On the mountain, God gave his prophet Moses two things to communicate to the people. The first was a reminder of a warning that he had issued prior to Moses' ascent. Moses made it to the top and God sent him right back down again to remind the people to keep their distance. Before he ascended the mountain, God had directed Moses to draw a boundary around the base of the mountain. And anyone who crossed that boundary and touched the mountain, whether a person or an animal, the people were required to either stone or shoot, presumably with a bow and arrow. They could not even touch the person. They had to throw rocks and launch arrows from a distance to kill them. And the reason for this artificial boundary and harsh punishment around Sinai was to communicate the very real chasm that existed between God and humanity. His holiness swallows up impurity. He cannot abide sin. In Exodus 33, God tells Moses in verses 3 and 5 that he cannot travel with them because he might consume them in his anger over their unrighteousness and sin. And at Sinai, he tells them to keep your distance. Keep your distance. That was Moses' first prophetic message at Sinai. And the second was, keep my law. On that mountain, God gave to Moses law after law after law, but none of them were as memorable as the Ten Commandments. The law was the holiness of God in codified form, which is why perfect obedience was the requirement. Again, before ascending the mountain, God had already instructed Moses to tell the people 
that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, if you want to be mine, to serve me and enjoy all my protection, then you must keep my law perfectly. Keep my law. But of course they could never keep God's law perfectly. No person can do that. Despite a moment of resolve to do so, we falter the very next moment. In Exodus 19, before Moses' ascent, God's people promised that all the Lord has spoken, we will do. But while Moses is still on the mountain, they blatantly violate the second commandment, making for themselves an idol. We are a broken people, unable to keep God's law. And it appears at Sinai that we are destined to live forever apart from our Creator and from our God. Keep your distance. Keep my law. Sinai does not present a very promising relationship between God and humanity. And yet Moses, God's prophet, ascends the mountain on the people's behalf and does not die. It for sure wasn't because Moses was perfect. The sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. And yet Moses was a murderer. In a vain attempt to express solidarity with his people, despite his privileged position in Pharaoh's house, Moses murdered an Egyptian while in Egypt and buried the body to hide the crime. He was a murderer, far from perfect. And he also tried God's patience. When God first called Moses into ministry, he resisted. Who am I? Moses objected. I'll be with you, God replied. I don't even know your name, Moses objected. My name is Yahweh. I am, God replied. Nobody will believe me, Moses objected. I'll give you miraculous signs so that they will, God replied. I'm not eloquent, Moses objected. I created the tongue and I will be with your mouth, God replied. Send someone else. Moses demanded, and the anger of God burned against Moses. This was Moses. He was not allowed to climb that mountain because he was perfect. Moses was allowed to climb that mountain because in him, God was setting the expectation for a prophet like Moses. Moses deserved to be consumed in the fire of God's holiness as much as the next person But God refrained in order to build the anticipation for a prophet like Moses, somebody who was human and yet could meet God face to face. This is the thing that caused everyone to marvel over Moses, that though a human being, still he was allowed to speak to God face to face as though he were his friend and not die. And this was possible for Moses merely because of God's grace and allowing it to happen. It wasn't because of Moses, but despite him. Moses was a guilty man living on the grace of God. His message could only be one of condemnation. Keep your distance. Keep the law. In order for the message to be anything other than condemnation, what was needed was someone who was both human and perfect. But only a human being who was also divine could be perfect. And there you have your expectation. In Moses, we are anticipating a prophet who is both human and divine. And the only person who matches that description is Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. 
Like Moses, he has ascended to the Father on our behalf, where he meets with God face to face, because he himself is God. And in him, God speaks to us a word drastically different than the message Moses conveyed. Keep your distance in Jesus has turned into come to me and peace to you. In Ephesians 2, we are told that Jesus came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. And the author of Hebrews encourages us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Father has sent Jesus to us with words of peace in his mouth. It is a drastic reversal in our fortunes. But it is because Jesus took the punishment that was promised to us if we drew too close to God. Although holy, he took the punishment due to those who are unholy but want to draw close to God. And in so doing, Jesus opened a way to the Father. Our unholiness became His, and His holiness became ours, and so we approach God through Jesus Christ and in the confidence of His holiness. In Jesus, God says, No longer keep your distance, but come to Me, and peace to you. And keep the law has become grace upon grace upon grace. Our New Testament passage this morning comes from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He lived a perfect life as a human being, so that not only is his death ours, but so is his obedience. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. In him we are forgiven, and in him we have grace as we grow in obedience. We will always be imperfect, but Jesus is perfect on our behalf. And so we strive for perfection out of joy and gratitude and not out of a need to justify ourselves before God. Jesus has kept the law on our behalf. And the Father no longer says, keep the law. But grace upon grace upon grace, follow me. His message is one of forgiveness and grace, not condemnation. Because he is a prophet like Moses, but far greater. He is both human and divine. And he makes known to us the love that God our Father has for us. Let us wait for him with great anticipation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.